Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshay. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Podcast listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's show. This is episode 10 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. Now, if you guys listened to last week's episode, we dove deep into a discussion on how torque is generated during the squat and how it is manipulated based on the type of technique you're using, whether you're using a high bar back squat or a low bar back squat. We basically dove deep into the science of the squat. Now, if you have not yet listened to episode nine, last week's episode, immediately stop what you're doing, go download that episode and listen to it before going any further into this episode because all that information from what we talked about last week sets the foundation knowledge-wise for what we're then going to talk about today. So today's class is going to be titled Squats Quad Dominant versus Hip Dominant. Now, when we break down the squat scientifically or biomechanically, we look for a few things including the length of the moment arm or lever arm. So here's a quick way to explain that. And just a little bit of a heads up, this next section is going to be a little more sciencey, I guess we'll say, but just like everything I do here at Squire University, my goal is to be able to take these complicated and research back ideas and discussions and simplify them so that every single one of us, no matter how uh, ingrained into the sciences your background is education-wise, you can understand it and take something away from it. So let's talk about what is a moment arm. Well, if you took a freeze frame of your body as you're squatting, um, and you stopped it at a parallel squat position. If you're looking from the side, the bar should ideally be right over the middle of your foot. That means you're in balance. Now, let's talk about why this is so important. Gravity always pulls straight down. And when we're squatting, gravity is pulling straight down on the barbell that's either sitting on our back or on our chest, depending on the type of squat we're doing. If you draw a vertical line directly down from the middle of that barbell, obviously we're viewing it from the side again, it would cut your thigh in two. Now, when we're viewing it from the side, we can then measure the distance from the knee joint to that vertical line we just drew that cut the thigh in two. And we can also do the same from the hip joint to that vertical line. Now, that distance, if we're talking at that parallel position, that is called the moment arm or lever arm if we're talking just at that position right there. Last week, we discussed that a low bar back squat has more torque generated than the high bar back squat at that hip joint because there's a longer moment arm. So the moment arm allows us to calculate scientifically uh, basically how much torque is generated at a specific joint during the execution of the squat. Now, why is this so important? Well, Because the low bar back squat has the bar positioned a few inches lower on the back than the high bar back squat, hence the name, (laughs) it requires a more inclined chest position in order to stay balanced and keep the bar over the middle of our foot during the whole execution of the squat. This means that the hips have to push back more so, uh, which creates that longer distance from the hip to that vertical line of gravity pulling down on the barbell. This means a longer moment arm and then more torque generated at the hip. This is why theoretically, on paper at least, more weight can be lifted with the low bar back squat technique because our bodies 
mechanically are strongest when the hip joint is loaded with the most amount of torque. Now, just like we talked about last week, this is on paper. Obviously, there's a number of other factors we need to consider as far as your ability to just feel comfortable on the bar. You know, some people don't feel comfortable with a low bar back squat technique. They're obviously going to be able to lift more weight. Therefore, in a high bar back squat technique. So time under the bar, your ability to feel comfortable, your lever lengths, uh, there's a lot of things that can you know, come into play. But theoretically on paper, when the hip joint is loaded with the most amount of external torque, like we we're just talking about, you can lift more weight. Now, many people will take this and they'll claim that a low bar back squat, therefore, is more hip dominant compared to the quad dominant high bar back squat as far as muscle activation goes. So because there's more torque placed on the hips in a low bar back squat technique, many people will think that the muscles that surround that specific joint like your glutes and hamstrings must work harder to then overcome that force. Makes sense, right? Well, that's not actually correct. And here's why. Let's take a trip back all the way back to anatomy class. Now, if you're in school right now, hopefully you have taken anatomy. It was one of my favorite subjects, uh, that in biomechanics. Um, if some of you have been out of school for a while, and maybe if you haven't even had anatomy class, we're going to sort of simplify this and talk about how your body is set up uh, from a muscular perspective. Now, there is a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to how the body works as far as what muscles do what actions when it comes to these things called multi-joint movements. So we're not talking single joint movements. If you sit down, you do a knee extension. Everyone walks into a globo gym, you're sitting down, kicking straight out. Obviously, you're just working your quads there. It's a single joint movement. Now, let's talk about how the body actually works during a multi-joint movement. So think about how muscles and their function were described in school. Now, you have muscles that cross one joint only. These are called monoarticular or single joint muscles. And then you also have muscles that cross two joints. They're called a biarticular or two joint muscle. Now, it's important to understand because our body, especially if we're looking at how muscles are activated during the squat, there's a lot of two joint and single joint muscles. Now, let's talk about the front side of your thigh. Your quad muscles, you have your vastus medialis and your vastus lateralis. Uh, both these muscle, muscles only cross one joint. They only cross your knee joint. They're considered to be, therefore, monoarticular single joint muscles, and they extend the knee when they contract. So when you are sitting down and doing a knee extension, you're only using or primarily using your vastus muscles of your quad. Um, however, on the other side, or actually still when we're looking at the front side of the body, the rectus femoris, that's another one of your quad muscles. But here's the thing with that. It is a two-joint muscle. The rectus femoris, it helps with knee extension. However, because it also crosses the hip joint, it is also a biarticulate muscle. So it's capable of not only extending the knee, but it can also help flex the hip. So it can bring your thigh closer to your chest. So standing up tall, if you bring your knee up, you're flexing at your hip. That's also helped or performed by the rectus femoris, so one of your hip flexor muscles. On the opposite side of the thigh, let's look on the back side, we've got what? We've got your hamstrings and you've got your glutes. Now, primarily, we're talking about your glute max. Now, the glute max is one of the most powerful muscles in the entire body. 
it's a monoarticulate or a single joint muscle. So it only crosses the hip joint. On the other side, you have, or on the little bit lower, we have the semitendinosus. You've got your hamstrings. Now, most of them are two-joint muscles or biarticulate. So they not only cross the hip joint, but they also cross your knee joint. This means that your hamstrings can not only extend your hips. So think about if you're standing tall and your leg is completely straight and you just pull your leg back. That's hip extension. Well, if you also do like a butt kick or a, yeah, a heel raise basically or a butt kick and you're bringing your heel towards your butt, you're flexing your knee as well. So the hamstrings have two things that they can accomplish when they're activated. Now, in anatomy class, we are taught that the hamstrings are a direct antagonist of the quads. Basically, that means that they do the exact opposite job. Now, according to your anatomy textbooks, if the quads are trying to contract hard and extend the knee joint, the hamstrings therefore have to relax to allow the motion to occur. Hopefully, it sounds familiar to some people. So if you're doing a seated knee extension, if you're sitting down and kicking your knees out, um, the hamstrings obviously have to relax to allow those vastus muscles of your quads to be able to extend the knee. Now, here's where things get interesting. So listen up. In the early 1900s, there was a biomechanist named W.P. Lombard, and he looked into how the body truly functions. He found that our body actually uses these two joint muscles, like we just talked about, in a way most of us never thought possible based on the way we were taught in school. Now, his research looked into what happens when muscles that should technically oppose each other, so antagonists, how they can both be active during certain movements and for a reason. So, for example, when we perform a squat, the hamstrings, right, two joint muscles, and the quads, especially the rectus femoris, that's another two joint muscle, they're both activated, but they're activated for a reason. Now, here's a question most of us have. If the hamstrings are activated, right, which flex the knee, and at the same time the quads are activated, which extend the knee, Shouldn't the body just freeze up and not move, right? They're both activated. So how does uh, how does movement occur if these muscles are both activated? According to what you learned about in school, that doesn't make much sense. However, here's what really happens. Our body uses these two joint or biarticular muscles, like the hamstrings and the rectus femoris, to transport energy from one joint to another. You see, when a biarticular muscle, two joint muscle, is activated during a motion like the squat, Movement at one joint instantly creates an opposite reaction movement-wise at another joint that that same muscle crosses. So, for example, when the glute max, a monoarticulate single joint muscle, when the glute max contracts during the squat to extend the hip, like when you are standing up out of the bottom of the hole, the rectus femoris, right, that two-joint muscle on the front side of your thigh, is activated as well to aid in knee extension. So when you stand up from the bottom of the squat, the hips and knees should both ideally extend at the same time if you're using good technique. Well, during this process, the two joint muscles of the hamstrings and the rectus femoris are activated, but they don't change in length. They stay at the same length. So the hamstrings actually shorten at the hip joint and lengthen at the knee joint, while the rectus femoris lengthens at the hip joint and shortens at the knee joint. Basically, they stay roughly the same length when you stand up from a squat with good technique. For this reason, these two joint muscles, instead of actually shortening like some muscles do whenever you're thinking about motion occurring, 
they're almost regarded as tendons. They allow the single joint muscles to have an indirect action on a joint they do not pass. This means that the activation of your hamstrings and your rectus morris do not cancel each other out. They don't lead to a cramping and a freezing of motion like you would think based on how you read about muscles and their actions in your anatomy textbook. So here's basically what this all boils down to. The glutes can indirectly extend the knee joint and the quads can indirectly extend the hip joint because of how the body is using these two joint muscles. Basically, the glutes and your vastus muscles of your quads function as force and work generators while the hamstrings and the rectus muscles distribute torque and power between the two joints. Now, obviously, this is a pretty difficult concept to understand. This It was called a paradox for a reason. This was called Lombard's paradox. That was a lot, to, a lot of science to take in, so I hope I didn't lose any of you guys. Now, so basically, here's the big thing. A lot of people will look at like EMG studies, basically studies where they hook up different electrodes to the body and they'll do different mo- motions, and they will say, well, the hamstrings aren't activated EMG-wise in a squat, so therefore, they're not important. And obviously, we're comparing this to other things like an RDL, a stiff-legged deadlift. Just because an EMG study doesn't show that the hamstrings are activated uh, to an extent of like an RDL doesn't mean they're not important. The hamstrings are extremely important during a squat because of what we just talked about. They help transport energy between the knee joint and the hip joint to allow your body to effectively stand up. Every muscle has a purpose during a motion. They're not just there for no reason. And this is showing us why. So let's circle back to the original question from today's, the start of today's podcast and answer the question, are the glutes more activated during a low bar back squat than a high bar back squat? Well, there's clearly more torque placed on the hip joint during a low bar back squat than a high bar back squat because remember what we talked about, the longer moment arm. The body does not activate the glutes more so to overcome this force. The glutes are already turned on during the squat in order to lift the weight. Instead, the body just redistributes power from the quads to the hips to help the body complete the lift. In the same way, we can use this science to say that a front squat does not activate the quads more than a back squat, the way many people think. In the same way, the body redistributes power from the hips to the knees to help the body complete the lift because there's more external torque obviously placed on the knee joint during a front squat than a low bar back squat. Now let's talk about what the research says on this topic because we can speculate with theories all day long, but if it's not actually backed by research, is it really of much value to us? Now, if you really dive into the research and the studies that have been done, there are a number that have actually looked at a front squat versus a back squat in terms of muscle activation. Remember, based on science, we can probably say that a back squat most of the time is going to have more external torque placed on the hips. A front squat's going to have more external torque placed on the knee joint just based on the changes in moment arm that occurs. Remember, a front squat, because it's going to have a more upright chest, in order to stay balanced, the knees are going to be much more further forward, which means longer moment arm at the knee joint and more torque placed on the knees. However, if you look at the research and actually read it, you'll find that there's no significant difference in most of the research studies based on muscle activation. 
Recently in 2016, there was a group of researchers led by Dr. Jonathan Sinclair that compared the front squat and the back squat at the same weight. So they took someone's 70% one rep max in a front squat, had them back squat it and front squat it. And while there was obviously more forward lean in a back squat, which would qualify it as a more hip dominant lift, they found that there was no significant difference in the muscle forces that the body generated. Now, other experts in the field like uh, Dr. Brett Contreras and Dr. Brad Schoenfield, um, they did a research study where they had a group of 13 women perform their estimated 10 rep max in a front squat along with the back squat to parallel and full depth. They found no significant difference between any of the lift variations in terms of muscle activation. In fact, there's only been one scientific study to my knowledge that's ever been done that shows any difference between the two lifts, front squat and back squat, in terms of muscle activation. The researchers that did this study found that the vastus medialis, so only one of your four quad muscles, was activated to a greater degree during the front squat compared to the semitendinosus, which is only one of your hamstring muscles, that was activated more so during a back squat. Now, here's the thing to understand about this study and why it's so important not to just take research study at face value. You really need to dive in and read the real, the full paper. A lot of people, they'll just read through the abstract, which is basically a summary of the article. You need to read the real research and read the full thing because there's a lot of things that will come out that will really make you change your mind based on the conclusions that maybe the authors uh, discussed in just the abstract. The differences that these researchers found did not appear until maximal weights in each lift were attempted. Okay, They didn't see these differences when they were lifting 60, 70, 80, 90%. It was only when maximal weights were lifted. And they also found no significant differences in any of the other muscles between the two lifts. So it was only the vastus medialis and the semitendinosus that they found any difference. So despite what you may have read in a muscle magazine or you heard from an expert or elite athlete on Instagram, based on all the available research, we can conclude that most people do not show any significant difference in muscle activation based on the type of lift technique they're performing, whether it's a front squat, back squat, or low bar back squat. Now, there are things that can change muscle activation, such as depth of a lift and the weight on the bar. Yes, for, so for sure. So a big back squat is going to activate muscles differently than a very light, than 40% of your back squat. In the same way, an ass-to-grass front squat is going to activate muscles differently, especially the glutes, than a parallel front squat or a quarter squat front squat. So yes, those two things can make a difference. Depth can make a big difference. The amount of weight on the bar can make a big difference. But just technique to technique does not make as big of a difference as many people thought. Okay, so now that we have that out of the way, let's get into some practical applications so you can actually take something away from this podcast. Let's talk about how you can take this knowledge and this understanding of torque generations and how muscles are activated to help you bust through the sticking point of a very heavy lift. Now, when most athletes miss a squat, they end up getting stuck about halfway up. So the hips are just slightly above parallel. They're starting to stall. Their body starts to shake a little bit. By applying what we learned today, we can include that a lift stops going up 
because the body is unable to create enough force to overcome the torque created at the hips, which are still flexed, they're still bent. If you think about when someone is getting stuck on the way up, the knees are usually pretty extended and then those hips are still flexed. It almost turns into a little bit of a good morning. The next time this happens to you, and this is what I want you to do, think about driving your upper back into the bar and push your knees slightly forward. Basically, shift your hips under the bar just slightly. Now, if you do this too far to too great of extent, you'll just shift your body weight on your toes. That's not what I'm talking about doing. I want you to have your heels and your full foot down into the ground. Remember, every squat must have a balanced center through your full foot, the tripod foot. I want your body weight spread across that full foot. So when you do this, still keep your heels jammed in the ground, but just push your hips forward under the bar. What does this do? This movement decreases the length of that lever arm at the hip joint, and therefore the amount of torque that is needed at that hip joint to overcome. So basically, less force is needed at the hips to overcome the torque, leading to an easier ability to stand up and finish the lift. Now, we can also use this understanding of Lombard's paradox to explain one of the most common technique faults, the good morning, or as I like to call it, the stripper squat. And I don't think I need to explain why it's called a stripper squat on this podcast. Basically, we're talking about the hips rising really, really fast and the chest is staying forward and sometimes even falling forward on the ascent of a lift. Now, there's two main theories as to why the good morning or the stripper squat problem exists when we uh, squat. Basically, the first is quad weakness. And the second, and the one that I think is probably a little bit more of a factor, is a coordination problem due to fatigue. Now, let's talk about the first one. Many people are under the impression that quad weakness is the main culprit behind this technique flaw. Can't tell you the amount of times I put up a video on Instagram, Twitter, anywhere on social media of someone doing a good morning squat, and a number of people will comment, oh, it's quad weakness. It's quad weakness. Now, when you look at the research that is meant to back this up, there's a lot of flaws if you actually read it like we just talked about. First, the majority of research to support this theory centers on studies on subjects lifting stuff from the ground like a box or a sandbag, not a barbell on their back. Now, here's one of those studies. So in 2012, there's a group of researchers from Cairo University and they analyzed technique and muscular activation on a group of participants while lifting a sandbag that was a pretty light sandbag, only 30% of their body weight over and over and over again. Now they took a couple of them and they fatigued their quad muscles like crazy in isolation. So basically they use this fancy expensive machine called an isokinetic machine. And uh, if you're in the physical therapy world or the medical profession, you know what an isokinetic machine is. If you're not, uh, don't sweat it. It's basically a big complete waste of money in my opinion and a fancy way to generate a bunch of objective numbers to see how strong you are in a very non-functional way of testing, like a seated knee extension that some experts will then use those numbers to justify whether or not someone can go back to running, which again, I mean, that's a big tangent. We can go after that uh, in, a very, uh, in a very different episode. So tangent aside, basically they fatigued their quads like crazy, and then they reanalyzed their movement that they used before for picking up a sandbag off the ground. And what they saw was that people that had very fatigued quads, they tended to lift more with their back and their hamstrings. Basically, they lifted with a very hip-dominant lift after. 
So based on this, they go, well, quad weakness must be the reason that someone would do a good morning or use their hips more so in the execution of picking something off the ground. And then people generalize that and say, well, that's the same thing that happens whenever you squat. Not necessarily. What these studies failed to demonstrate was how the body actually responds to fatigue when lifting a weight on your back. If you think about it, when you're squatting, you're fatiguing all your muscles roughly at the same time. You're not just fatiguing your quad muscles and everything else is just doing fine. So there's, it's tough to necessarily take what they found and just automatically justify it and transfer it over to how someone's going to respond with the barbell on their back. So this is where the second theory comes into play, which I talked about. During the ascent of the squat, we ideally want the chest and the hips to rise at the same time. This is something I've talked about many, many times. What this does is it keeps the bar centered over the middle of our foot when viewed from the side. And this means that our body is basically in balance and capable of producing efficient force and power. However, when athletes fatigue while squatting, so near the end of a high rep training session or uh, near that maximum weight if they're attempting a new one rep max, they often lose their ability to stay balanced and maintain that perfect coordination. So they allow their chest to fall forward. Now, excessive forward trunk lean leads to obviously the hips rising faster than the chest on the ascent of the squat. Now, what does this do? It lengthens the hamstrings. Now, because that biarticulate muscle, that two joint muscle of the hamstrings are now lengthened, the body, just like we talked about today with this Lombard's paradox, the body loses the ability to transfer force from the quads to aid the glutes in hip extension. So that is why the hips remain flexed. They're pushing up, but the hips are still in a flexed position. The knees are extending faster than the hips in a good morning squat or a stripper squat. Now, there's been a couple of different experts that have sort of weighed in on this opinion. Dr. Gregory Meyer and Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, people who do a lot of research, they've explained that this fault is a problem, the chest falling forward during a squat and when people are fatiguing. It's a fault. It's a problem with suboptimal motor recruitment patterns, which is what they'll say. Now, fancy way of saying that the ability of the body to turn on the right muscles at the right time to maintain technique. That's what suboptimal motor recruitment pattern stands for. Basically, we have a problem in coordinating the muscles. They're not turning on at the right time. So what this all means is that a good morning strut or a stripper squat is likely caused not solely by a lack of quad strength, but rather more so probably due to a problem in coordination in motor control that happens because of fatigue that leads to a disruption in Lombard's paradox, a problem in being able to transfer force from the quads to the hips to allow for a good, proper-looking squat. So instead of quad weakness, the more likely cause of this fault is the ability to turn on and coordinate those glutes at the right time due to fatigue. Now, in a recent study, there were some researchers that looked at the muscle recruitment changes in the body That takes place when lifting near maximum weight. So obviously this has a good carryover to what we're talking about because often people will turn into that good morning squat whenever they reach um, a very, very high high intensity squat. They found that when experienced lifters jumped from 90% to 100% of their one rep max, they actually recruited their glutes more so in an effort to keep their chest up on the ascent. So the researchers commented that this action transfers force from the hips to the knees, allowing the body to complete the squat ascent with an obviously the more ideal upright chest position. 
So again, let's talk about some practical takeaways from this part of the discussion. If you, the athlete, or you, the coach, are seeing an athlete that as they are going up and they're fatiguing during a very high repetition set, or they're going near their maximum and their technique breaks down, and they're turning into, their squat is turning into this good morning or the stripper squat, their chest is falling forward horribly, the bar is pushing over their toes, you have one of two options. First, you talk to them about correcting their technique, pushing their uh, their back through the bar, allowing them, talking to them about allowing their chest and hips to rise at the same rate so that they're more in balance. That's your first go-to. Or as they sort of hit that sticking point, drive those hips forward to basically reinstate the Lombard's paradox and that body, that symmetry of the body on the ascent of the squat. That's your first go-to. If they cannot fix their technique, because they're so fatigued or because they have hit a weight that they're unable to maintain good technique, you know, you have to make that judgment call. And many times, in my opinion, if it does not look good, you need to have them drop the weight to a point where they can show good technique. Because in the end, if you push through weight, even if it's lightweight with a lot of repetitions, it doesn't always have to be big weight. If you continue to push through bad technique, Two things are going to happen. First, you're going to reinforce that bad technique. So it's going to become almost an ingrained movement pattern, and it's going to be harder and harder to fix your good technique because your body is learning how to move with that bad technique. It's going to become second nature to move like that. Uh, Second thing, you're putting a lot of this micro trauma on your body. You're subjecting your body to harmful forces because you're moving weight with suboptimal movement, suboptimal technique. Now, you're not going to get injured all at once, usually, with a squat like that. But over time, these harmful forces on the body are going to add up, and that's when injury occurs. Now, especially if we're talking about this stripper squat, the good morning squat, when those hips rise so quickly, we talked about there's a huge moment arm that is then created at the hips, but what also is happening is it's putting a huge moment arm at the low back. What this means is that you're placing a ton of external torque on your low back, on your spine. And what happens is that these muscles are not meant to overcome all this. They're not getting any help from anywhere else in the body. Over time, this is something, a big reason why some people develop back injuries while squatting. Remember, the first thing I always do when I have someone that comes into me as a physical therapist during an evaluation, I'm looking at what caused or try to find the why behind an injury. The first thing I'm looking at is movement quality, not only with a body weight movement, but also with how they are moving with uh, the barbell on their back, I'll ask them to show me some videos of them lifting because often I can trace back the cause of their injury, the cause of their back pain by just watching them lift. And if I'm seeing them go into this and default into this stripper squat or this, um, you know, the good morning squat with heavy weight or when they're fatiguing, you know, they're trying to do an eight rep max and their hips are flying up like crazy, their chest is falling forward, boom, there's the why. There's the reason behind the injury in the first place. We need to be able to correct for that. So hopefully these were some cues that you can learn today or that you were able to take away today to understand why this motion probably occurs in the first place, not just quad strength. If it was, you could just sit down and on a knee extension machine, crank out a bunch of sets, get your quads nice and strong, and it would automatically carry over to a better looking squat. That's not the case. You can't just strengthen your quads in isolation on a knee extension machine and think it's automatically going to fix a good morning squat. That's not how the body works. You need to be able to perfect technique 
coordination of all the muscles of your body to allow the hips and chest and knees to rise at the same rate. That's how the body works during multi-joint movements. It's not as simplistic as just strengthening your quads like some expert on Instagram may have told you. So while a squat may look more hip dominant, while a squat may look more quad dominant, the squat does not exclusively train the quads. The squat does not exclusively train the glutes. A low bar back squat does not exclusively train the glutes. The quads are still a huge driver in getting that weight up because the body's able to redistribute that power. All of the muscles in the lower body are activated together to extend the hips and knee joints regardless of how the squat technique looks in the amount of torque that's placed on one specific joint. If there's less joint torque on one joint, the body's going to redistribute energy from another part of the body the other joint to help overcome that increased torque at the other joint. So if someone asks you, what does the front squat work? Or what does the back squat work? Tell them it works your squat muscles. It works all the muscles. If you are in uh, the the fitness uh, aesthetic world, I guess the bodybuilding world, there's nothing wrong with doing squats. I want you to do squats. But if you're there to focus on one specific group of muscles, that's what machines are for. That's where those muscle isolation exercises are for. I'm here to talk to you guys today about the movement of the squat. And guess what? The squat movement works the squat muscles. We're not here to focus on one specific muscle. Whenever you're doing the squat, if you're using good technique, the body's going to naturally turn on the right muscles at the right times. So, That is it for today's podcast. I hope that the show was able to take you sort of a step back from the traditional way in which we look at the body and expand your understanding of how movement really happens. Again, if you're enjoying these shows, you know, keep hitting me up on the Instagram DM or on Twitter at Squat University and let me know how you're enjoying them. You know, uh, keep taking screenshots of your podcast on your phone and, you know, while it's playing and share it with your friends. Uh, I've seen a lot of that. That's really awesome to see. It means so much to me to have your attention during the short amount of time. And I hope that you're continuing to learn something new each week that's helping empower yourself to live a stronger, pain-free life and lift some big ass weights. So uh, until next week, guys, happy squatting. That's it for today, class. On Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.